This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. And now, Christ and Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. Hello, everyone. I'm Erin Straza, and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. Today's Persuasion Conversation is sponsored in part by Plow Publishing House, publisher of The Gospel and Dickens, which was edited by our dear friend Gina Delfonso. And we'll have more about that at the end of the show. But for today's conversation, we're just digging into our fall series for God and Country. Each episode will tackle an aspect of how faith and politics collide with the aim of gaining clarity in how we think about and hold to our political perspectives. So last week, we just started. Hannah, I loved our conversation with Caitlin last time. It was so helpful to me. It was. And I hope it was helpful to listeners, especially in maybe framing up that there's a possibility of a different way of approaching your political life. Um, I loved how Caitlin kind of guided us to this uh, paradigm where we're being shaped both by our political engagement, um, but by our Christian faith, and that there is a way for these things to work together for the common good. That it is a calling to be engaged in politics. It is a calling to be seeking um, the good of our neighbor. And I know for me, that was helpful because so often I just want to throw my hands up and walk away from it all. I think that's where so many people are right now, because what I am hearing in the conversations that I am having and that I'm, I'm seeing even take place online, people do feel like political conversations and how that relates to faith, it automatically feels like conflict or it feels like there's no way forward. And so then it's just easier to step out or to say, oh, let's not talk about it. And Caitlin offered us a perspective that felt positive and hopeful and um, almost like it it diffused some of that angst a bit where she gave us a, a different way to look at politics and our faith as something as an investment, something that we can positively sow into our community. And that to me, alleviated a lot of that contention that I feel with political conversations. I've seen a lot of the same thing that you're describing. And I've actually been really surprised um, recently how many folks I've seen who are advocating just opting out. Um, And I think that's a valid option. I want to just go on record with saying I don't believe you're you're compelled or forced to um, vote or not vote or whatever. I do think there's a lot of alternatives that a Christian in their conscience could take. But I've been surprised by the number of people who seem to have just hit a point this cycle where it's like, all right, 
I'm out. I'm just stepping away from it entirely. I'm putting it in God's hands and we'll just see what happens and I'll live and find a way to move forward. Um, So I've been surprised by that. Um, At the same time, I was also very hopeful um, in the conversation with Caitlin that maybe that's not our only option. Maybe you can be really frustrated and maybe you can feel overwhelmed and the only option isn't I'm stepping away, that there could be a way to build into, to move forward, to navigate this kind of shadowlands that we're in right now. So I found that very encouraging, but I was left with a lot of questions. Oh yeah, me too. <laughs> I feel like we we cracked this topic open and then I think last week you even joked, what have we done? Or like, what, are we really ready to dig into all this? But I think all the questions that I have, that has been confirmed by some of the conversations that I'm seeing from our listeners. So all you listeners out there, thank you so much for commenting and and contributing to the conversation because I think it's affirming that we all have questions and this is the place for us to come and explore some of those in greater detail. And one of the questions that I think we really have to tackle head on, or at least one that's in my mind is if you reach the point where you're ready to engage in political life, if you if you decide that, yes, this is a calling, this is something that uh, Christians should engage in for the common good, that there is a valid vocation here, um, that you're going to build into society, you're going to create structures and be part of creating communities where um, our neighbors are cared for and loved. The first question that comes to my mind is, what does that society look like? Like, what kind of nation are we going to build? If if we accept the challenge of political engagement, that still doesn't answer the question of what should that polis, what should that community, what should that public space look like? What should America be? That is... A good question, Hannah. I think it's one that causes a lot of the the strife on, in conversations because we all have a different idea of what the nation should be. And even among Christians, it's the assumption that, hey, we're all coming from the same um, biblical foundation. So therefore, shouldn't our vision match up? Shouldn't it all be the same? But that's not what I have encountered. That's not what I'm seeing out in public conversation. And that makes it more confusing in some ways. Like I, I know that's where I have been frustrated is when I'm talking with another Christian and we're coming at these answers so differently. Like the answer they have for that vision is different than the one I have. And it's really hard to stay in that conversation to try to understand how they arrived at their position as as opposed to where I landed on mine. Yeah. And I think one of the things that makes it difficult is that our vision of what America should like should look like or our vision of what a good functioning society looks like is so um assumed. Like, I don't even know that we're aware very much of what we have in our cultural imagination or our personal imagination. And it's kind of the problem of does a fish know <laughs> that he's in water? Yes. Does a fish know that water's wet? It, it's so much this kind of cultural vision that we hold in our brains of what 
goodness or a good society looks like, or even to the question of make America great again, that question of, well, what does greatness look like? What would it mean if America were great? What would that look like? And and I find that we, even in my own process, I'm not always clear about my assumptions because they're assumed. Right. And not only clear for yourself, but the assumption that what other people have for their definition matches up with yours. I, I've been in so many conversations where it is just assumed that I agree with the end decision or the end proclamation of whatever that topic is. And that is so unsettling to me. It's like, oh, no, I actually don't agree with that stance. And it's unsettling because the assumption is, oh, no, we we all think the same. Or because we are Christians, then we must have the same avenue of thinking. And when you realize you don't, it it is disorienting and you feel a little bit lost, like, oh, I must be off kilter a little bit here because I didn't come to that same stance or position on a on a particular topic. So our own definition, we don't know. And then we certainly don't know what other people are defining mm-hmm. either. Yeah. And, and I think, though, one of the best ways to uncover this, one of the best ways to get to those hidden assumptions is to look at what causes us pain, what causes us discomfort, what causes us to react and what elicits fear or concern for us. So it's, it's kind of the image of going into the doctor and he, he you know, presses on a point and say, says, does this hurt? Um, when I push on this thing, does it hurt? And that helps reveal where our um, brokenness or where our kind of assumptions are. And I think one of the things I've seen um, widely among Christians is what causes us to react. What kinds of things elicit a response for us? What are we afraid of when we see the country going downhill or we see it not heading a direction we think it should go? If you pay attention to that, it will also tell you where you think it should be. It, it will help you lead you back to your assumptions. Um, even as something as simple as, uh, I don't know, the removal of prayer from schools or questions about religious liberty. I think those things have the potential to show us what we believe the country should be. Those are the kinds of topics I hear among Christians that help reveal assumptions about um, what they're envisioning a great America looks like. I love that picture of the pain points or or kind of identifying where you see that something isn't lining up the way that you would want it to be. That's so helpful because those are the places that are easiest to identify um, when we're feeling pinched or we're feeling concern or fear, um, especially when you think about the way that we we operate as Christians in society. Um, there has been this undercurrent, I think, of fear that we are losing ground, that we are um, not able to practice our faith the way that we would want, whether it's prayer in school or faith in the public square, whatever that might be. We do have this sense, there has been this discussion that Christians are experiencing a bit more 
persecution or maybe just their their expression is being um, restrained a little bit. And that has been something that has come up time and time again, this concern that we are no longer holding the territory or the space that we used to hold. I hear that a lot in conversations among Christians. Yeah, it's almost a rallying cry. Yes. Um, It's almost the thing that hits people's ears and actually can get them to muster. Um, This idea that we're losing our Christian heritage, um, that we need to take America back for God, or we need to um, make sure we don't lose ground, make this a Christian nation. So those are the kinds of cries that I hear directed, especially toward um, people who would claim to be Christians or people of um, Christian faith, is that the the question of what kind of nation should we build is somehow intrinsically tied to the Christian experience. So there's this strange connection between building the common good of America and your identity as a citizen as a of America being overlaid with um, almost a Christian kingdom or your citizen there. So there's this tie between um, your national identity as an American and your religious identity as a Christian. And those things really overlap in a way that make, they get conflated to the point where I don't know that people can separate them. Yes. As and, and not even to, to our awareness, just like what we, what we talked about before. It's um, something that is happening subtly and it's, it's, sort of like the air that we're breathing, we we just assume these things to be one and the same. And um, Hannah, you had the opportunity to talk with Sam Perry, who has done some significant research on this. And I think that will be a huge help to this conversation. Yeah, a couple, I don't know, it's probably been a month or two ago now, a friend kind of pointed me in the direction of Sam Perry and Andrew Whitehead's new book called Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States. Um, Sam is a sociologist, a professor um, of sociology, and has a particular interest in this overlap between Christian identity and national identity, particularly in the United States, and how um, our kinds of assumptions about what the country should look like um, and what we're willing to fight for and promote within our politics for the common good. Um, He's really done some fascinating work, um, not just to talk about the history um, of this idea of Christian nationalism, but... um, to talk about what does it look like in this moment? How would you identify it? And what does it mean for our life together? We got interested in this topic really in earnest right after the 2016 election. Um, And it was primarily because of, of the conversations that were going on about who voted for Trump and the role that Christianity had played in there. I think the narrative that we had kept on hearing, and this was just repeated over and over and over again, and it, it seems like it's still repeated, is uh, that you know 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump. And that was that phrase that kept getting thrown around, white evangelical, white evangelical. And you know, um, me being from an evangelical background and my co-author from that background as well, 
uh, they just didn't sit right with with the kinds of uh, evangelical Christians that we knew. And uh, and it seemed like, you know, I wonder if there's a, an underlying factor uh, or belief system or value, uh, cultural framework, we call it, that that seemed to drive certain pockets of conservative Christian Americans toward Trump and everything that he supports. Uh, and so we had some some we had some hunches that that Donald Trump especially was successful at appealing to this narrative that, you know, this this nation rightly belongs to Christians and uh, you guys are being victimized right now as Christians and everybody's out to get you. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to give this country back to you. I'm going to I'm going to fight for you guys. I'm going to stick up for you and uh, and I'm going to be your your hero if you support me. And, uh, and lo and behold, one of the first studies that we did on this topic, we, we had some survey data where we asked all of these questions about what America believe, what Americans believe about a Christianity's role in American civic life, like whether they think the United States is a Christian nation, whether they think it ought to, we ought to advocate Christian values, or whether they don't think there should be a separation of church and state. And we found that Americans' beliefs, what we call Christian nationalism, uh, were among the leading predictors that somebody ended up voting for Trump. Uh, and we have, in subsequent studies, we've found that Christian nationalism strongly predicts uh, how Americans think about immigration issues, gun rights, the military, whether or not uh, we ought to salute flags, uh, whether or not you support Black Lives Matter, whether or not you think the police uh, wrongfully discriminated against African-Americans. All of these really, really important and key uh, social and political hot button issues. And so the book was really trying to... to develop more fully this idea of Christian nationalism and, and really how we think it's kind of hijacked uh, American evangelicalism in, in, in completely unfortunate ways. I don't, I don't think it necessarily contributes anything positive to the, to the subculture of, of what it means to be a committed Christian. In the United States, I think it's, it's mostly political idolatry that wraps itself in religious language. Um, and so that's where we come in. I guess that presents the question, um, what exactly do you mean by Christian nationalism then? If it's not the category of the evangelical voter, if it's not necessarily this committed Christian, um, what were you looking for? What kinds of things signaled to you that this category of Christian nationalism and, and what exactly are you defining by that term? Sure. Uh, we try to, as you, I think you, you just pointed out, we, we try to be very careful about our definitions in the book because we want to be crystal clear for readers what we are and are not talking about. So uh, by my definition, I understand evangelicals, white evangelicals, to be, um, to be really more of a, theo a theological category. Uh, it's a, uh, it refers to a subculture uh, of, of Christian that of, of Protestant Christian mostly that that uh, holds a high value of Scripture, uh, believes the Bible is, if not inerrant, it, it is it is infallible and trustworthy and the the ultimate authority in somebody's life. Uh, they believe that uh, salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. That people need to share the gospel. Um, evangelicals tend to have more of an activist bent towards the world, unlike fundamentalists in decades past who just kind of retreated from the world, evangelicals engage, right? We, we engage politically, uh, you engage through, through representing or witnessing. Um, and so evangelical in that sense is, is not a political category. It is a, a theological category. It speaks to a specific theological like subculture. Uh, 
Christian nationalism, we think of more of as a, a, a political, a quasi-religious political ideology. And it's almost, uh, it's almost ethnic in the sense that uh, the word Christian means something more than just Christian in a theological sense. So let me give you the broad definition, then I'll give you specifics. Um, when I say Christian nationalism, I'm, I'm referring to an ideology that idealizes and advocates a, a fusion of American civic life with a, a very particular kind of Christianity. And whenever I say Christianity in that definition, I, I always want I always want to say this that it, there's an asterisk by that that word Christianity um, because it means more than just whether or not somebody has asked Jesus into their lives, whether or not they consider themselves a disciple of Christ. Um, Christian in that sense is kind of like what we call a dog whistle. Um, if, if you're familiar with that term, dog whistle politics me is, is, is always in reference to uh, when I want to say something ugly about a group of people and I can't say it specifically, I can use these kind of code words that people kind of understand uh, underneath the, underneath the, 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 the subtext there. And so historically, if I wanted to say, I could say, I could say, words like urban or illegals or terrorists, when what I really mean and everybody kind of gets is poor inner city black, uh, Mexican, uh, Muslim, you're, you're kind of getting the subtext there. So in this same sense, the word Christian and Christian nationalism is kind of a dog whistle. It, it, it means people like us. Uh, it means Christian in a, in a very broad cultural sense and more so like an identity um, not necessarily, as you were pointing out, not necessarily like your belief or your commitment, but more so kind of commitment to a certain kind of core identity. But it also means it implies white. Uh, it implies native born uh, American citizen. It implies conservative. And so what Christian nationalism wants to institutionalize in the United States is a fusion between American civic life and that particular kind of Christianity in quotes, right? That, that culturally conservative, white, native born, Christian and in identity. And so how do we measure this? Well, in the book, we actually, and we've done this in all of our studies, and I think we've developed a pretty good way of doing it. Um, what we do in the book is we ask all Americans, we, we distribute these surveys, these national surveys that, that, that look at a representative sample of Americans. And we, we ask them to respond to six statements. And these are statements like, the federal government should declare the United States a Christian nation. And we ask them, how much do you agree or disagree with that statement? Or another statement would be the success of the United States is part of God's plan. Or uh, the federal government should advocate Christian values. You know, and, and so we would we would probably agree that the, the more somebody is in agreement with those statements, the more it seems that they subscribe to this kind of Christian nationalist ideology. And so what we do is we add up all these statements together. We make a scale that goes from like zero to 24. And we just call that our Christian nationalism scale. And in the book and what we do is so that we don't have to talk about how people scored like a two or a five or a 12 on that scale. We divide up that, that little measure into four categories that we call rejectors, resistors, accommodators, and ambassadors. And just really briefly, that just goes along the scale. Rejectors are people who absolutely reject Christian nationalism and any kind of connection between Christianity and the government. Um, resistors uh, are kind of like rejectors, but just less adamant. On the other side of that, you've got accommodators who that actually is like a third of Americans who mostly consider themselves Christian and they think religion is a good thing, but they're pretty uneasy about marrying the two completely. 
And then you've got ambassadors. And then we call this the, the true believers. These are folks for all intents and purposes. This is who we're talking about when we're talking about Christian nationalists. These are people who strongly agree that the federal government should declare the United States a Christian nation or that uh, the success of the United States is part of God's plan or that we have a special relationship with God or that kind of thing. And you, you might be surprised. You, you might think that's a small group of people. Uh, that actually is a fifth of, of the United States uh, in that population that we call ambassadors. Um, and so it's not a, it's a minority, but it's a, it's a pretty substantial minority. I so appreciate um, you tracking that down, that um, data we had about the 81% of evangelicals, um, you know, being of a certain disposition or voting a certain way, because I remember um, sitting with that number and feeling that in some ways it, it, and again, I'm not dealing with data. I'm much more of an anecdotal generalist. I'm coming from a place of local church life. And in some ways I could say, okay, there's strong support. Okay. There's a lot going on here, but it's also not tracking particularly with my understanding of evangelicals that are most committed, maybe theologically committed to their faith. It made a lot of sense to me. Um, Anecdotally, it was more reflective of the person who has a kind of religiosity or religious disposition, but not necessarily committed out living it out. Um, So I love that you make that very clear, and you do that in the book as well, is that there is overlap here, but you're actually identifying something very, very specific that can't be summed up by this evangelical category. And well, I, I, just to follow up on that, I think the the second thing that I try to emphasize, and we emphasize this in the book in almost every chapter, is that uh, commitment to one's faith does not mean Christian nationalism. And in, and in some, uh, oftentimes they behave in the exact opposite way. So um, we have these, you know, uh, statistical models that we use where we control for all of these other factors and we kind of predict Americans' values and behaviors. And something that we find is that Christian nationalism will often influence Americans in one way to take a certain set of views and religious commitment. So how often somebody goes to church, prays, reads their sacred texts, that kind of thing, often inclines Americans to go in the exact opposite way. So let me give you an example. Um, We find Christian nationalism, the more somebody adheres to Christian nationalism, the less friendly they are towards the idea of immigration. They think immigrants are like drains on society, that we need to build border walls, all of these kinds of things. But once we account for Christian nationalism, we find that how committed somebody is to their faith actually makes them go in the opposite direction. So in other words, like the more they go to church, read their sacred text, pray, the less likely they are to hold these really intolerant views of immigrants. I'll give you another example uh, about one I just used a second ago about like race and policing. So this is really controversial topic right now. Uh, police brutality against African-Americans in particular. And we find that as somebody increases in their adherence to like Christian nationalist ideology, the the more likely they are to deny that there's any kind of inequality in policing. Black Americans get punished because they deserve it. If they get shot, it's because they deserve it. Uh, that kind of, They shouldn't, shouldn't have resisted. Christian nationalism seems to want to blame black Americans for the, the things that they experience at the hands of police. But we find in those same models, once we account for Christian nationalism, the more committed you are to your faith, the less likely you are to hold that view. In other words, you're more likely to acknowledge racial inequality in policing and that kind of thing. So um, we want to we want to we want to hammer home 
this this statement that um, our argument is not with people who are committed Christians at all, right? In fact, we're asking you to be more committed, uh, authentically committed to what we feel like is a sincere commitment to the values that 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 Jesus embodied, and that is not Christian nationalism. That is uh, that is love and forgiveness and self sacrifice and tolerance and and uh, and we feel like things that a, a truly democratic society allows us to do and live out, whereas Christian nationalism seems to want to institutionalize and enshrine a completely different set of values that that as you just said a little while ago are really in contradiction. Uh, to what we feel like a Christian ought to to be about. Well, Sam, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your work and helping us clarify these categories. Um, I know that our listeners are going to be greatly benefited from it. And if you're listening now, go get uh, Sam's book. It is Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States by Sam Perry and his co-author, Andrew Whitehead. Thank you, Sam. Uh, It's a privilege. Thank you. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At BOW, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Well, Hannah, that interview with Sam was so helpful for me. Um, It gave me lots of challenging things to think through in terms of how he's presenting Christian nationalism as something that is hijacking our faith. I thought that was really arresting and um, and disconcerting. And then he also talked about um, the rampant political idolatry. That was something else that was really challenging to me, because if these things, if these themes are running through the Christian subculture, then I want to take a look at how have my political stances and my filter, how has all of that been affected by these things that are just so common, but we don't even see them. It it affects how I think the nation should be. And um, those things need to be assessed, I think, in each of us so that we can understand where we're being influenced in ways that we aren't even aware. Yeah, I think the two things that I took away that really struck me about the work Sam has done is, first, this idea of Christian nationalism is not a matter of maybe it exists. It does exist. It is the air we breathe. It's the water we swim in within the church. And it's more a question of identifying it and and paying attention to it and and kind of unearthing it in our own thinking, being aware of what's going on around us. But the second thing I really appreciated about Sam's approach is 
he's not asking us to divorce our faith from our engagement. And I really was grateful that both in the interview and in the book, he, he made a point to say he's not coming at Christians who are committed Christians. He's not trying to tell Christians you don't have a place in the public sphere um, because that is kind of the the threat. And I think the thing that drives some of this conversation is there are people that are telling Christians your, your faith needs to be private. It needs to be hidden. It shouldn't influence you at all. We want a secular world. We want a secular America. And I'm not sure that that's any better than a Christian nationalism. So I don't think the solution is to not be a committed Christian in public, to somehow fragment your Christian formation and values away from your public engagement. And and so I really was grateful that Sam was saying, you know, when we talk about Christian nationalists, we're not talking about people who are deeply committed to their faith and want to love their neighbor well, and they're, they're fueled by a public witness that they want to testify to the kingdom and to Jesus Christ. We're not talking about those people or that approach. It's something very distinct. And I think what was the challenge to me then is how do you live out your public witness in a way that doesn't veer in either of these directions? Yes. Moving into those extremes, that is the challenge because this this idea of nationalism, I think before we started exploring this topic, I would have thought, oh, no, like I, I don't think that's part of the faith circles that I'm in. I don't think that's part of my thinking. But now that I'm becoming aware of it, I'm seeing how easy it is to slip into those nationalist, nationalism-like ideologies because they feel a little bit more um, palatable or or certain or distinct. Um, but because they they have a strength to them, it's, it's almost like it is... Um, carving out territory and space and saying, we belong and we are allowed to be here. But the way of Christ is actually a, a way of serving. And I think that circles back to our conversation with Caitlin, where we are coming to the public sphere to sow kingdom principles because they are good and they they provide flourishing for all rather than it being I want my flourishing it's more like okay how does everyone flourish and those kingdom principles do allow for the greater good in the best way and so for christians we do need to be actively in in our society in our community in our um city leadership positions, doing good, but rather than it being a Christian nation, it would be more like we are people who are Christians who are doing good. And I think that that's a very different approach. Um, it's not requiring that everyone is like us or or has the same faith as, as us. It's more that we are coming with that perspective to do the best that we can for our fellow citizens. Yeah, and I think it also forces us to wrestle with the question, what kind of faith should we build? So we kind of open the discussion with what kind of nation should we build? What would it look like to pursue the common good as Christians? What are we trying to accomplish here? But I think you can't uncouple that from 
what kind of Christianity am I trying to build? What kind of uh, Christ follower am I trying to be in the world? And one of the things that I find challenging about Christian nationalism is it's almost an attempt to subvert our Christian formation as much as our political formation. And I know that sounds a little um, brash, but what it's essentially doing is it's trying to create an environment of ease for Christians. And it's trying to make Christianity easy to exist in, in the world. And it's trying to form a society where I'm not challenged by my witness, where going about my business with other people who are like me and I can be comfortable in exercising my faith. Not that I have the freedom to exercise it, but that it will be easy and comfortable and socially acceptable. And unchallenged. And And unchallenged. Yeah. And I think creating that kind of environment as the goal has serious repercussions on our faith itself, not just the nation and the communities we build, but on our sense of making a home in this world and our sense that our goal is ease and comfort. And those kinds of impulses run so counter to the way Jesus talked about Um, our discipleship in this world. You know, he he says in things in the gospels, like um, you are going to be persecuted. They hated me. They're going to hate you. This is not your world. I'm leaving you in the world, but you're not of the world. And and I'm so concerned that so much of this push for Christian, um, a Christian nation, quote unquote, is not simply a push to make America something. It's a push to avoid the kinds of suffering that is promised when we take up our cross. And I agree with that, Hannah. And I think, again, going back to that that fear or that push that we need to take America back for God, it feels much more rooted in how we can create a Christian bubble rather than how do we welcome people into the kingdom. And, and taking America back feels much more of a... Um, of retaining of our place of power or privilege rather than being concerned that if we are not a Christian nation, we would not be able to reach people with the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. And and really in terms of kingdom work, our main concern should be welcoming all into the kingdom of God rather than making sure that we have a bubble around our Christian life. And and I think that those are some really key things about what type of nation are we trying to build? Are we wanting one that is safe for us? Or are we wanting one that's open in terms of allowing us to serve for the greater good, for the kingdom of God? Yeah. And again, I think this just presents more questions for us. Yes, it does. Um, <laughs> which is why I'm glad we have more episodes in this series, because if we are shifting away from this notion of finding our comfort and our ease in a certain culture or a certain nation on this earth, um, and that our formation as Christians is part of this process of suffering and being at odds with the way things are done, that also presents the question of 
how would you go about doing politics? What kind of dispositions, what kinds of um, virtues would inform the way that you even navigate political spaces, even if you can agree on the kind of nation that should be built? How do you go about building it? And and so we're going to tackle that next time. Um, in our next episode, we're going to uh, address questions of the dispositions that we have in our engagement with each other in politics, especially with those we disagree with. But that's going to be it for this episode of our Forgotten Country series. Um, as always, you can join in the conversation. Um, we're on Twitter at Persuasion CAPC. If you're part of the Christ and Pop Culture Members Forum, you can pick up the discussion there in the community Facebook group. If you're not a member, you can be one for just $5 a month. And I'm going to tell you that you should become a member. There is so much going on there. As well, we have some great member offerings, um, some discounts, some things that uh, you want to take advantage of. One of those we want to highlight is from our sponsor um, for today's episode. Plow Publishing House is offering our members a 30% off discount. And you can access that from our website website at christandpopculture.com. We're so happy to have uh, the ability to get some good books into your hands at discount. And that will do it for today's conversation. We're so thankful to Jonathan Clausen. He produces Persuasion and all the other shows in the Christ and Pop Culture Network. You can listen to them at christandpopculture.com or go to iTunes and search Christ and Pop Culture and all those shows will populate there for you. Thanks so much for listening to Persuasion and we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name. This episode was brought to you in part by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.